Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, hey, everybody. A fun show again today. Our guest is Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, which recently launched an actively managed ESG-focused ETF, ticker Bees. In today's episode, Liz dives into the strategy of Bees, which focuses on responsibly growing companies that are stakeholder-governed, purpose-driven, and make a net positive impact on the world. And she shares some hot takes on the state of both ESG and active management. As we wind down, Liz talks about the process of launching an ETF with our friends at Alpha Architect and shares advice for anyone thinking about launching one themselves. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you. For new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Liz Simi. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Where do we find you today? Toronto, the Great White North up here. I heard an A in your diction earlier. Are you originally a Canadian? Yeah, born and raised in Toronto. My whole life, uh, I've never gone anywhere else. Actually, I went to Montreal for school and then came back and will never leave this great city and country. Awesome. I love it up there. We're going to talk about a lot today. One of the topics, listeners, which you probably really want to stick around for is this concept of starting ETFs. I get a lot of questions every day. People want to start an ETF. They got an idea for an ETF. We're going to talk about someone who's done it very recently, putting out their first fund in November with our crazy friend, Wes Gray and crew. So we'll definitely get into a little bit of that later. But I want to talk a little bit about you, your ideas, your process. Give us a little background. I have an economics degree, economics and history degree, and I wanted nothing to do with this great industry of ours because I wanted to make the world a better place and do cool stuff. So I ended up in market research, so consumer insights, so testing brand strategy for P&G and big bank, you know, new account, all these kind of cool research projects, quantitative and qualitative. And then my dad started an emerging manager. So my dad's bootstrapped a U.S. equity manager based in Toronto. And they had this third guy 
who was American and he got divorced. And so when you get divorced and you're here on a, on a spousal visa, you get sent back to the U.S., which is, you know, it is what it is. And so my dad needed a third person to come in. I begrudgingly said, sure. It sounds like an interesting idea, having literally no concept of the investment industry beyond a little bit of exposure here and there. And I was lucky. I joined a bootstrapped dividend growth equity manager at about 10 million AUM and was there till about 1.5 billion AUM and then left to start Honeytree. And to be super clear, it's because my dad was a founder. I mean, let's, you know, there, there's a whole pile of privilege in there. But if I'd gone the traditional route to be a portfolio manager at a bigger shop or a pension or whatever, it'd be a very different experience that wouldn't necessarily set you up to, you know, going to bootstrap your own uh, emerging manager. And the firm's called Bristol Gate for folks who want to Google things. We launched ETFs in 2018. And I had met my co-founder at the same time. And we thought, all these folks are trying to launch ESG strategies and they're all missing what we think the end client for these ESG products want. And this, to be super clear, is long only equity universe, not, you know, alts or hedge funds or anything like that. And so in 2018, we set out, which is the same year we launched the ETFs up here. 2018, we set out to found Honeytree. We were registered in 2019. It takes a lot longer up here to get approved by the regulators. We started our track records in 2019 for our global equity strategy. We did that so that we did not need to launch a vehicle off the bat because vehicles cost a lot of money and they take a lot of effort to distribute. They take a lot of awareness and all this stuff. Anyways, we had always intended to launch a retail vehicle. We did not ever want a private fund. Long only boring strategies definitely don't make sense in private funds in Canada or the US. And we thought we'd have a Canadian vehicle first. So we went around. There's not as many white label options up here. And the ones that they have are, we'll call it not as good. But we thought we would launch a sub-advised Canadian vehicle up here. And then we met Wes. And Wes decided that we needed to get ourselves into a U.S. ETF. And then we realized, wait a second, you know, uh, US, the U.S. market's bigger. There's m just as much, if not more, demand for ESG products. One major distribution difference between Canada and the U.S. is in Canada, nobody cares that we're woman-owned. We're the fifth or sixth public markets asset manager owned by women in Canada. That's how many there are up here. And so the so there's no manager diversity initiatives up here institutionally or from advisors, whereas everybody knows in the US, lots of states have diverse manager initiatives at their pensions and things like that. And so we thought, if we're going to do this vehicle, let's do it in the US, let's do it as an ETF, and let's do it with Wes. And boom, November 7th, we launched our first ETF. And the ticker is B's. B-E-E-Z, because, you know, branding matters. And it's a U.S. large cap, and it's focused on responsible growth. So it's the same investment thesis we've been working on uh, our entire firm history, which is responsibly growing companies, stakeholder-governed, purpose-driven companies who take care of their stakeholders, outperform in the long run. What's really interesting is we did not like any of the existing ESG frameworks. We thought, there, and I could talk about for 10 years about the problems with existing ESG and investment frameworks, but we kind of threw out a lot of the ratings and existing models and existing assumptions about ESG. And we took what my dad had built, a quantum mental model for Bristolgate, and we brought in ESG data on equal footing with the financial data throughout the entire 
process, what we're known as is ESG integration. So full ESG integration, which means we treat ESG data as fundamental company data in security selection, not here's our financial model over here on one side and here's our ESG model in, in reviews over here on the other side. We, we treat the data, the ESG data that we use as fundamental company data when picking these companies for the portfolio. So let's dig in on the process because a number of the phrases you used could mean a lot of different things. ESG means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let's hear a little bit about y'all's process. You have a nice deck. If we can include it in the show notes, listeners, we certainly will on the process, which I think is very helpful. But why don't you walk us through it? How do you guys find responsible growth? What does that mean? And when we hit some of these terms, let's try to uh, give y'all's interpretation of what you think it means to you as well. So quantumental means we are not purely fundamental and we are not purely quant. We use both processes. And for folks out there who are not, you know, deeply steeped in equity, fundamental equity land, you know, fundamental is, you know, considered deep dive, qualitative research and quantitative research into a company versus quant processes tend to be more quantitative less deep dive into a company type measures. And there's many different managers who do both. We do both. And what that looks like in our process is we start with the whole index, whatever index that might be. In this case for the ETF, it's the US. And we run 25 qualification criteria. And most of those are quantitative data points. We don't do like a fancy schmancy predictive complex quant like some of other folks might think quants are. But we have 25 qualification criteria that's trying to get us down to a consideration set of about 50 companies. And what that qualification criteria looks like is there's some functional stuff. You know, can we buy it in custody in North America, 5 billion minimum market cap, uh, some financial, if we have a dividend, it has to be growing investment above investment grade credit rating. Then there's a lot of traditional ESG exclusions. So Traditional ESG exclusions are kind of like the original religious investor exclusion because ESG has its roots in religious investing. So no weapons, no guns, no gambling. We don't exclude pot, but no pot companies make our screen. We exclude fossil fuel production. That's sacrilege up there in Toronto. Man, no wonder you're launching this in the US. There's all the all the classic Canadians, man, the mining and energy. They're probably just like, Liz, what are you talking about? Well, it makes it very interesting up here because like we're we have all the major pensions are deeply committed to ESG and deeply committed to energy funding. And I like to point out to people that the energy companies are really good at DEI and reporting much more so than like tech companies and you know, asset managers, but that's a different story. But we exclude fossil fuel. There's a couple of reasons we exclude fossil fuel. We never held an energy company at Bristol Gate because energy companies are a little too cyclical to have high consistent dividend growth. So from uh, uh, fitting in and into, you know, qualifying and, and, and getting into the portfolio, they're likely to fail anyway. So it's kind of just a bit easier to screen them out because you know they're not going to make it. We also don't have any renewable energy companies in our portfolio. Well, also, I mean, when you move from a universe of thousands down to 50, you're invariably going to kick out all sorts of things and areas and sectors and industries, whether it's from the broad criteria, whether it's from the secondary sort of criteria as well. So that's the whole point of active management. You want a concentrated portfolio because if you're charging more than zero, you want it to look at weird and different. Yeah, and I've, it's funny because I've never understood why folks 
don't want it to look weird and different. Like you, it's one of my big issues with active management index hugging. It's very simple. They want it to look weird and different when it's going up. They want it to look weird and different if it's going down and you're not going down. But mainly, it creates a weird principal agent problem because a lot of the large asset managers, once they get to scale, once you have 10, 50, 100 billion, 500 billion, you don't want to look that different because there's only downside risk. Like the money is already captive. And we know that money, once it's sitting somewhere, doesn't like to go anywhere unless it gets abused or does very poorly. If you look at a lot of the old school hedge funds too, their early years where they did 150% or you know these massive returns and now they all do 7% with 10% volatility and they're all chasing fang stocks and it's like you know like what are, what are what are you doing but the index hugging thing people like to pick on ESG for index hugging active is index hugging all the way i mean i'm a big believer that a lot of active underperformance comes from not taking risks and not having high active share and index hugging and making a bunch of stupid decisions as part of that. But you're right. Our consider our qualification process kicks out whole sectors. You know, when we run our global, we we exclude dictatorships in our global equity strategy. Um, so we're okay not having exposures to a bunch of things, whether they be sectors or countries or, or type of companies. In our non-traditional ESG qualification criteria, we look at board diversity beyond gender. So we include racial diversity of board members, 33% or more. So we won't look at a company who has not figured out how to put uh, a couple token diversity hires on their board yet, mostly because if you haven't figured out how to do that from a governance perspective, you're you're not very competent. I mean, does that screen alone kick out like half of the universe, it feels like? No, people are much in the U.S., especially the U.S. boards are like pretty diverse. Canada is pretty bad, but obviously we've got none of those in, in the ETF. But, you know, it, even when we started, if we had a 40% bar, it would kick out lots of folks. It's funny because it really, it ends up kicking out cool tech, renewable energy boards that you, you know, not typical stuff that we hold in our portfolio, like boring industrials and boring retailers and semiconductors, because they've all been working on this stuff for a while. So they, you know, the, it doesn't kick any of those out. Investment grade credit rating might kick out more companies. If you look at, you know, the last cohort of our qualification process, there's probably more boards that fail or more companies that fail on investment grade credit rating or like fraud issues and things like that, you know, lawsuits than on the board diversity. Why? Because everybody's slowly figuring it out. And to be super clear, we've increased that 33% from 30. So eventually it'll be 35. And, you know, we have to, we have to deal with the universe as it is, because our goal is to get from the universe down to a manageable consideration set that we can cover from a fundamental deep dive perspective in the most efficient way possible. And, and we run that consideration set once annually. So we've done it five times now. So we did 2018 to, till now. And it, it evolves, but it doesn't change that much. It absolutely spits out overweight IT, overweight industrials, materials. We never have any banks. We have some financial stuff. We generally don't have real estate. And we're okay with that. And one thing you'll notice if you look at our portfolio, there's a lot of manufacturing involved companies. And that's where the semis kind of pop in. It's because these companies who have had to, you know, manage labor, manage manufacturing facilities, manage employee safety, you can imagine they're maybe a little few steps ahead of a West Coast tech company in terms of, you know, thinking about their employees and reporting ESG stuff and, and worker safety and things. So it's, it's interesting how it kind of, kind of nets out. 
Yeah, I'm saying this from a podcast whose listeners are probably 90% male. I mean, I remember giving a speech in New York to Quantopian crew, and they did like a live audience, and it was like 95% male. But the venture capital has like, to me, like the most outsized, I mean, I think women get like 2% of venture capital dollars. It's some like, incredibly low number that's nowhere near 50. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so we're getting a little off topic. All right, so we're starting with a number of these factors. You got a lot of them. What do you think are the main drivers of the ones that sort of filter out the most things? Are there any of the 25 or so that are particularly more prominent? Looked at it year over year, and they tend to be, I mean, obviously, like, participation exclusions. You know what? I would say it, it, there. there's a whole bunch and they're all pretty equal. And that need for dividend growth, the investment grade credit rating, the diversity, the industry participation, the typical ESG exclusions, even Glassdoor rating, it's kind of just an equal. I, you would think it was bigger in some of the areas. Other than like losing whole industries, it's a very interesting kind of balanced process. And you know, when, my, when we did it at Bristolgate, it was the S&P 500, got rid of all the non-dividend payers, got rid of everybody below investment grade credit rating. And based on next year's predicted dividend, we chose the top 50 and did the fundamental deep dive on those. And what we're getting with the same but a different process, because remember, what we're cutting out is not, we can't just have the highest dividend growers. Because if we just looked at the highest dividend growers to get the ESG growers to or the you know responsible growers to we'd have to kind of go a little bit further than the top 50 high dividend growers. And that's why we kind of altered or optimized this process that my dad built because we wanted the same factor exposure. So these high consistent dividend growers who are well-managed and well-governed and focused on the long-term, we wanted them, but with a slightly higher level of ESG. And, and to be super clear, if you look at the Bristolgate ETF, it has a higher ESG rating than most ESG managers and strategies out there. Because boring, high, consistent, sustainable dividend growers generally have high ESG ratings because they generally don't do a whole bunch of stupid stuff that gets you kind of pushed down in the ranking with controversies or you know behind on the times in terms of board diversity, all these things that make up ESG ratings. And you'll notice I didn't mention we use ESG ratings because we don't use ESG ratings at any part in our process. And ESG ratings, just because I know people hate ESG and ratings. Um, ESG ratings are the same as buy-sell ratings, right? So it's just external sourced research that a portfolio manager can buy or not. And so we run that qualification once annually. That gets us to about 50-ish companies. And then we do our fundamental deep dive. And what we do is we take all the financials we did at Bristolgate, which you know skews um, looking at debt capacity, how conservatively they're managing their debt, earnings growth, dividend growth, competitive market share, and we bring in ESG data and put it equally beside that financial fundamental data. And we purposely organize it under pillars so that they're equally weighted. So it's not like, hey, the financial part gets 66% weighting and the ESG part gets, we don't, we don't divide it like that. And nor do we, just to be super confusing, do we think of measures as E, S, and G. Every ESG input that we use, we consider fundamental to the company. And I'll give you some examples. So turnover. Turnover costs you money. It's an ESG measure, but you know, the higher turnover you have, the more it costs to hire new people. Water use. If you can save the cost that you spend on water, 
it's a financial thing. It's definitely an ESG thing, but it's tied to the the operations and the costs of a company. It's not a separate consideration. Waste is a great example. It costs lots of money to dispose of waste. And then you get into the stuff that's a little more confusing to understand how it's tied to the bottom line, like gender and leadership year over year, racial diversity and leadership year over year. So at first glance, oh, that's just a feel-good measure. Well, companies that we're looking for and that we own understand that the more women you have in leadership roles, the bigger your pool of candidates you have to recruit from. Right. So it actually increases the many positive benefits to the company of doing this basic stuff that some would say is, you know, stupid DEI stuff. But the companies that we're holding are doing it for operational and business reasons, not because it makes them look good on a questionnaire. We look at science based targets, which are net zero related. We look at parental leave. We look at what data we can find that's relatively systematizable across the consideration set of companies. And so if you think about it, we're looking at probably some of the, of the 50 companies we're doing this deep dive on, we're looking at some of the top ESG reporters and scoring things. So we actually can run relatively custom data sets across this 50-ish group of companies like racial diversity in leadership year over year, three-year change in that, three-year change in water intensity, three-year change in water use, because you can't get it for the whole S&P 500, for example, because a whole bunch of those companies aren't reporting that level of data yet. But because we're looking at this kind of more advanced ESG-esque pool of companies, we're getting all these data points that we would not be able to buy from an index provider who's selling ESG data across their index. Ultimately, we're building a high active share 25 position, super concentrated ETF of the most boring, sustainably growing, responsibly growing companies. And in a nutshell, these companies that we're holding understand that the positive impacts that they make on all of their stakeholders, um, so their employees, their customers, their the, the local community, their shareholders, they understand that the positive impacts they make on those groups drives their bottom line. And so it's not separate from their bottom line doing good by their employees or their customers is core to their mission and core to their purpose. And these companies are founded on that. And it doesn't matter what their political beliefs are. Well-managed, long-term focused companies that are stakeholder governed and purpose-driven will outperform in the long run. And that's, that's our investment thesis. And I should probably define some of those, some of those terms. Sure. Let's hear it. So stakeholder governance. So anybody steeped in investing has been generally trained that shareholder primacy and shareholder governance is the role of a corporation. So a corporation's job is to govern on behalf of their shareholders and make their shareholders money. The problem with that is employees and customers and a whole bunch of other factors influence a company's ability to make money. And so stakeholder governance which is is not something I invented. I, I would argue original governance with stakeholder governance, but that's a more complex topic. Stakeholder governance is just a company that says, you know what, our employees and our customers and all these things need to be considered in our governance and our management processes. Why? Because they impact and they're impacted by our decisions and we'll do better if we're engaging all of our, all of our stakeholders and helping and supporting and not screwing over essentially all of our stakeholders. And so there's tons of companies out there that believe in a stakeholder governance framework. So instead of being a, a our, our only goal is to return returns to shareholders, 
that becomes just one of the roles of the board. And so we're looking for those companies where there's evidence in their metrics, whatever those metrics might be, that they're considering their stakeholders. Because you can't just say you or your stakeholders are governed and you care about all this stuff, just like you can't say you care about diversity. Uh, saying you care about diversity or the environment is great, but what you actually do in your business and the changes that you make and the outputs that you can see in the business tell you whether something's caring about any of this stuff. So stakeholder governance is, is I think it's something corporations do more naturally. I think it's in the investment industry. I think a lot of our traditional finance theory assumes that stakeholders don't matter. And so what you see in ESG is you see traditional financial models over here and you see people trying to fit all this climate and diversity into those models and they don't match because the traditional models assume shareholder primacy and shareholder governance. The only way ESG works in a corporation is when it's it's core to their operations and core to their purpose, not as a separate activity on the side. Our companies are not doing ESG stuff to feel good or to look good. They're doing it because it's part of their purpose and their core, and it's how they were always founded and how they've always operated. So that's and, and purpose-driven is really complex because it's something I learned a lot about in governance training and in marketing, which is it's really difficult to communicate to uh, consistently to people. And so these companies that we're looking for know that it's really hard and know that sharing, having a shared purpose, getting a whole thousands of employees to work together towards the same goal consistently and communicating that goal is a difficult activity that they as a board and a management team need to work on. And that shared purpose is not only having a clear purpose for the organization, but but helping all your employees, all of your stakeholders, all of your customers understand why you're there and what you're doing makes for a more efficient ship, if one might wants to say. When you have disparate goals and disparate ideas in, a, in an organization about where one should go, it's less efficient. And, you know, folks get confused and don't understand as clearly, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. And this is all, you know, leadership and governance science that, that is just in the early stages of, you know, academia in terms of like quantifying and analyzing all this stuff. Um, but I think everybody can agree that if everybody's running around with their head cut off and nobody knows what they're doing at a company, it's decreasing productivity, right? And the more everybody can be on the same page in terms of long-term goals, the more efficiency that you can achieve. As you think about governance, you know, there's areas that you may or may not be involved, but you can speak to it. I'm thinking of things like in the US, particularly with some of the tech companies this past cycle, who have been very sort of me focused, meaning like stock-based compensation that's just outrageous, a ton of dilution to shareholders, maybe dual shared classes, all these sort of voting things that have gone on. Do those play any role at all in sort of kind of your various screens? And how do you think about sort of this push-pull, you know, story as old as time with the balance of power between boards and C-suite and compensation. How does that play into what y'all do? There's like 100 topics there. Um, and they're all super fascinating. I'm going to start with a story. So Google, back must have been 2018, 2019, when we started, uh, had two senior dudes sexually harassing a whole bunch of their employees. And the board found this out. And then the board spent 12 or 14 months debating what they should do with them. And the one woman on Google's board said, probably we should tell people and fire them. Probably we should do that. And they all just kind of sat there and 
twiddled their thumbs. And this is all highly qualified group of people who are CEOs and on a whole bunch of boards and they're professionals at this, yet they they, you know, one of the largest companies in the world sat there and twiddled their thumbs. And then eventually they gave the guys 50 million each and paid them off and caused a big controversy with all their employees. All stuff that they could have been avoided. It's not their fault they got a bunch of sexually harassing dudes. The board's job is to hire and fire the CEO. And when the CEO's not hiring and firing the dudes sexually harassing folks, you know, that's a governance issue. The first time we built the portfolio, our global equity strategy, two of the boards had recently fired their CEOs for sleeping with their secretaries and various other things. And that shows functional governance. So the answer to to your question is like, what is functional governance? Is it a whole bunch of independent board members? Well, that's what the ESG ratings would tell you is good governance. The problem is, you know, 10 independent, highly qualified folks don't create good governance. Good governance is created by a governance culture by a shared purpose, by people actually working together on governance issues. So you can have good governance with weird compensation and all this kind of stuff at the same time. Like, absolutely, there's there's a... But I would argue a lot of that big tech is poorly governed. You know, we we don't have much of... We don't have any FANG stocks in our portfolio for a reason. And it's not because they get excluded for, for producing fossil fuel. Um, but there is a strong belief that non-independent directors are not ESG. We don't necessarily share that belief. While we'd prefer, you know, obviously we look for audit committee independence, for example. That's one of our requirements. We won't invest in a company, but that ship sailed. Everybody knows how to make their audit committee independent at this point. And there's no magic bullet on compensation. And just going back to CEO compensation, people hear a lot about CEO compensation. And there certainly are a lot of highly paid CEOs. And we don't, the problem is we don't have any good measures right now to truly assess CEO pay. And what I mean is what we're generally using right now is average worker pay to CEO pay. And so it really depends on what industry and which set of data that you're using. And what matters more is, to me, who cares about the CEO pay? What matters more is the baseline employee pay. What matters more is pay equity, right? So if you've got a man and a woman in senior leadership roles, and the woman, just because she's had lower incomes throughout her career, is getting paid less. And this is stuff that companies can fix. And you know what, what matters is Walmart's base pay versus another retailer's base pay, not necessarily the ratio of what their executives make versus what that pay is. Because a company paying a low amount to executives doesn't naturally mean it's doing better for the world. And executives cost lots of money. So it's a really interesting, messy topic. But the future of ESG is us being able to get this data at the right granularity. So we already have exec comp. So exec comp obviously was already always there. It's just a little more standardized in ESG reporting now. Um, What we're soon going to have is leadership comp divided by group, right? So we're going to have women in leadership's comp, men in leadership's comp, even broken down by racial diversity because the future of ESG reporting is the Department of Labor diversity data being put in financial statements as required disclosure. And that includes gender and race by level. Um, and that's going to end up including turnover. It's going to end up including pay and pay equity, including bonuses. It's very interesting because pay versus the salary versus bonuses gets very messy in terms of pay equity. It's going to be a shock to everybody and everybody's going to hate it except for the companies that have been reporting this already. 
With the U.S. stock market near peak valuations, is it time to look elsewhere? The Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol EYLD, focuses on high cash distribution companies located in emerging markets. EYLD's process goes beyond focusing on just dividends alone to include buybacks and debt paydown, a trio collectively known as shareholder yield. The result is a portfolio of companies that rank highly on shareholder yield and offer strong free cash flow characteristics. Learn more about the Cambria Emerging Shareholder Yield ETF by visiting cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Again, that's cambriafunds.com slash EYLD. Cambria funds are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. Investing involves risk, including possible lost capital. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. International investments may involve risk of capital loss not associated with domestic investing. Companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time. How do you guys deal with shifting sands over time, not on things that are as obvious maybe as diversity on boards, but things like, hey, we're going to exclude, you know, you mentioned cannabis, alcohol, like opioids. I don't know, a decade ago, people were like, these are the best thing ever. And now they're like, oh my God, you know, these are responsible for a lot of misuse. Things like, I mean, my, we wrote an investing paper a while back on the investing pyramid, but the example we gave was the food pyramid from my youth, which is like, you really should just be eating pasta and frosted flakes and muffins. Your base of food should be carbs. And the last thing you want is fats or, you know, protein, whatever it was. And today it's inverted. So like as knowledge change and shifts, how do you guys kind of deal with that? I know you said it's an annual process, but do you sort of update these criteria and ideas as they kind of become more accepted? Like, how do you think about some of these topics? I like to point out Almost everything we do kills people and and folks in the ESG side of the stuff give specific sectors a pass, like pharmaceuticals, for example. So we have we have no pharma companies in our portfolio. We have a lot of health tech though, like you know, medical equipment and things like that. One of the reasons we have no pharma companies is because they all have price fixing scandals. And so regardless of their uh, ability to kill folks with their product or whatever, which is is obviously like don't even get me started on the opioids and the Sacklers because that could be a whole other podcast. The price fixing, which is they just, I don't know, they all just decided to do that in the past five years, all the executives just running for prices or whatever, and then the big Congress thing. But here's what happens in, in ESG and impact. And I say ESG and impact because impact ratings happen in public markets too. So sometimes people, when they talk about impact investing, it's just private markets, Some, but for the most part, we have impact ratings on these companies. The problem with impact ratings is they generally are based on the SDGs. So the Sustainable Development Goals, which are developed for countries by the UN. And so a company to be impactful, according to this framework, and I'm, I've got a whole bunch of air quotes here for people who are not watching my sorry, attempt at uh, framing the sarcasm, to be impactful, a company needs to address an SDG. And so what happens is all the pharmaceutical companies get a 100% impact rating because they make a drug that's helping people. They don't get any negative rating for price fixing. And so we would not be only concerned about the opioid crisis. We'd be concerned with the whole Sackler you know, governance shit show um, disaster that was them creating the opioid crisis. For anybody who has not read the long, I think it's the Atlantic piece on the entire history of the marketing behind that. Because again, 
the food pyramid that you talked about, do you know who paid for that? It was not the FDA. It was the cereal companies, just to be super clear. Like there's a whole bunch of research that it, corporate interests, this is, this is one of my passionate areas. Tariq Fancy was the former CIO of BlackRock, ESG at BlackRock, and he quit and he went on a big, big speaking tour of the world to say companies don't make an impact, only governments and nonprofits can make an impact. But the Sackler family in a corporation through a whole bunch of marketing decisions and a need to make more money started and created a giant negative impact far beyond their product, right? With all the lies and the the paying off doctors and continued issues, they created a negative impact that no government or nonprofit could stop. And so the answer is companies make giant, giant impacts, positive and negative. What we're trying to aim for in this portfolio is companies making a net positive impact. So companies who are reducing their negative externalities because they cost money, they hurt people, they look bad from a PR perspective, a whole bunch of reasons why you would reduce your negative impact on the world while increasing your positive impact. So whether that's better, decent pay, safer work conditions, better quality products, more innovative that solve things, you know, reduction in packaging. So it costs less, all these, these negative and positive impacts. So as far as portfolio construction, you know, you get down to these small group of names, 25, whatnot. Do you, you have some sort of sector composition screen? So it's not all 25 in med tech, for example, or how do you guys do any sort of position sizing on these final portfolio? Yeah. So they are equal weighted. So we remove the position size decision-making. Um, my dad always said it was so you didn't have a bunch of PMs fighting over position size. We run a correlation analysis, but it's sector agnostic, right? And we used to own McDonald's and KFC in my dad's strategy. And people would say, aren't they the same company? And when you look at the geographic revenue of them, they were completely opposite, right? And you, you know, same thing. Uh, there's lots of companies that look very similar and seem very similar in this large cap space that aren't necessarily. And so, you know, we, when you look at our portfolio, we got a whole bunch of similar stuff in there. And that's the nature of one, we're being really selective, two, we're kicking out a whole bunch of stuff, but we are definitely don't care about what the weights of the index are at any point in our decision-making. And we know we're going to be overweight tech and industrials and usually materials and both consumer things, depending on, but we're agnostic to that. And these are equal weight bets. So we're putting the same weight on a mega cap as we would be on a, on a small cap in the portfolio. And then that's part of the active share. Like we're okay, not holding the top 30 something percent of the index. We have none of the fake stocks. You can't have high active share if you're holding a bunch of those companies and everybody else. I mean, everybody's going to have those in their portfolio anyways, but it is, it is really, we're looking for the 25 most responsibly growing companies out of that 50 ish set of companies that we have. It becomes our bench too. So the next set of, you know, ranked companies in there are who we'll, we'll use when we need to fire a company whether it's for quarterly earnings or doing something stupid um, on the ESG side or the, you know, the non-ESG side. But again, a lot of our stuff is annual data. And so, you know, while, you know, annual reporting and reports come out mid-year and things like that, a lot of our, you know, board diversity changes when they change somebody on a board. And we have fired a company for going below our threshold, but you can imagine the companies that we're holding are very cognizant of not, you know, you know, if you've got 76% board diversity, of course you can get you know, put a, put a whole bunch of white dudes on your board. But if you got 31 and every 
investor that shows up is engaging with you on your board diversity or something, you know, you're going to be cognizant of it. And, and that's what's so funny about ESG. The whole world tries to blame BlackRock and the investment industry on ESG. They're the laggards in this. The pensions, for the most part, do a lot of the engagement around, and, and lots of managers, to be super clear, ESG managers, do a lot of pushing on diversity and, and environmental stuff and governance and all, all these kind of things. But it's the companies themselves who realize that it's a marketing benefit, it's a recruiting benefit. It's the, the their big four accountants saying that they can audit this data and helping them organize it. Like it's the corporations driving ESG. It's not BlackRock driving ESG. It's not definitely not Vanguard driving ESG stuff. Literally, literally, Vanguard is just being called into Congress for pushing climate change narrative, which is the funniest thing in the entire world for a passive shop, right? And so, you know, the oil sands companies up here in Canada are working doing a lot more work than most asset managers on diversity and reducing their emissions. Why? Because they have a whole bunch of investors who care, and they could be foundations, pensions, individuals, who care about progress on this stuff and employees who care about progress on this stuff. Give us a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to start an ETF. We get this question a lot. A lot of people see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's obviously a lot of work that goes into it. You guys are relatively new launch. So congratulations. But tell us a little bit about the experience, how it's been. Have you made it down to Puerto Rico yet? What's the overall agony and excellency of being a not only a founder, but a money manager and now a ETF issuer as well? And a wholesaler and a marketer and uh, all that kind of stuff. I think it's fascinating that people think ETFs are like ideas. I think there's so much room for innovation in this industry. I think it's going to look completely ish different in 20 years, but I think there's some stuff that is not going to change. I think there's always going to be public markets investors and private markets investors and folks who do both. I think people are always going to think geographically in terms of allocation in certain things. I think there's certainly a place for thematics. When you launch a product, it doesn't matter what it is. Base SMA model, ETF fund, index, because that's a whole side interesting side of the, the business. You have to know who's going to buy it, no matter how cool the idea is. And you have to know how it's going to get distributed. The good thing with an ETF vehicle is people can buy it, regular people can buy it, and advisors can buy it in a bunch of places, but there's a whole bunch of restrictions and things that they make things more complicated than just launching an ETF. Like uh, the crypto ones, for example, you probably are friends with all Eric Baltunas and all the crypto obsessed uh, ETF folks. And they're going to, whatever the spot Bitcoin ETF is going to launch. Well, most of the wirehouse shelves are locked in the US. Interestingly, up in Canada, none of the wirehouses lock their shelves to Canadian or US listed ETFs. So any advisor in Canada can buy any ETFs, except the crypto ones. The big banks up here has put a special ruling on crypto ETFs. And they basically said to advisors, you cannot buy them. You can only buy them if your client signs a big waiver and it gets a high risk rating in their portfolio. So even though these are possibly the coolest, most talked about ETFs in the entire, entire world, a whole bunch of Merrill Lynch and UBS and City folks are not going to be able to buy them in there accounts anytime soon because they're going to have to get approved 
They'll probably create external ones, internal ones so that they can, you know, because there's a pay to play aspect there too, that folks need to understand. Like you can get your ETF on Schwab or whatever for free-ish. Getting your ETF on US platforms requires money and time and a bunch of random stuff. Um, so this crypto one's really interesting because these should be, there's going to be like, I don't know, how many are there? Like 18 now, all the big asset managers, and they're going to watch and some of them are going to get on some platforms, but a whole bunch of them are going to get locked off a bunch of platforms. So even though it seems like an ETF is a magic bullet in terms of wrapper for these products, there, there's a whole bunch of other considerations. So that that's just my rant to tell everybody that your product idea is great. Who's going to buy your product and how they access it is probably more than 50% of the consideration that you should make before spending a whole bunch of money to launch an ETF. For Retail platforms, when I say retail platforms, I mean advisors using platforms to manage their models. An ETF is becoming an increasingly better option than a mutual fund because one, you're usually going to price it lower. Two, they're changing all the fees and cost structures of how ETFs and funds and trade costs and things like that. And so you see a big move towards arguably simpler ETF models. And that's why, you know, we didn't go with West because we love West. We went with West because we definitely weren't going to do a mutual fund. And he had a he has a great white label ETF platform and, you know, has has demonstrated. I mean, I met Perth first. That's how we met Wes. Perth is my hero. I know. Well I noticed your uh, your dictator's comment earlier. And so I said that sounds like somebody we know. Yeah, and I just think it's so fascinating. Perth, 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 my probably one of my favorite examples, obviously, of building a successful product. She knew there was an, a lack of emerging market systematic products that ex, she knew there was none that excluded dictatorships, and that there would be a whole host of advisors across the U.S. who would be totally fine with their emerging market slice of the pie to not include Chinese holdings or Russian holdings or Qatari holdings or whatever. Because there's enough emerging markets companies out there to get the exposure. And yeah, you're not going to look like the index, but who cares? Lots of folks are looking for systematic or active options, not the whole index. That's, you know, that we're, we're never going to convince a bunch of passive folks to use us as a core option, even if we're like the best in the world. Like that's just, you can't change the consumer behavior. So Perth really built her product to solve the end users need. And I mean, she got an amazing timing with the, you know, the Russian invasion, but it was already, she was already doing the work of finding the market fit and getting, you know, teams to build her into the model long before that happened. And so everybody should just go learn everything about Perth, because if you want to launch an ETF, literally, literally just go watch all Perth's videos. Perth has been on the show. She's an alum. She, uh, listeners, runs the Freedom ETF, FRDM, which is closing in on a billion dollars in assets. So go Perth. That's right. Perth is amazing. So she's just the perfect example of you need to find who's going to buy your great idea before going and figuring out how to make your great idea. And maybe you were an advisor, maybe you worked as a wholesaler, maybe you worked somewhere in the distribution of the industry, but especially if you're a pure portfolio manager or you're outside of the industry, do some work on who and why and who's buying this product and where are they going to put it? Because you need some of those basic answers before you make a bunch of decisions that are going to cost you money that you're going to need to go change. The way to launch an ETF is to have a whole bunch of money and be willing to spend it, I think is the best way. Launching a vehicle, whether you are BlackRock or a startup, is a bit of a coin toss. I was talking to my buddy 
who works at a pretty large asset manager. And he was like, yeah, any new fund we have, we spend the whole time worrying about who's going to be the first 20 million in, right? And so, you know, you, you got to go find kind of where that first 20 million is. And then it's never going to come as fast as you want it to come. And that's why you need to have money. But it really is, you, you look at the list of any list of ETFs and you go to the bottom ones. And it's not just like 30 little startup companies you've never heard of. It's literally 90% giant asset managers who've got vehicles from, you know, two to $10 million. I, I love telling folks, Kathy Wood launched an ESG ETF in, I don't know, 2000 and then closed it 18 months later because she couldn't raise money in ESG ETF. So literally you could be the most famous human being on earth. You still need to find the distribution connection between the product that you're wrapping and the need. And then you need to not like screw up the performance and all that kind of stuff. When it comes to, you know, you've got a lot of different takes on the space, but one of the questions we've been asking most of the guests is like, if you sit down to coffee or lunch with a bunch of advisors that are sort of in your world, what's a belief you hold that say, if you sat at the table, 75% of the attendees would shake their head and say, Liz, I disagree with you on investment related, portfolio related, ESG, DEI related, anything come to mind? Yeah, a lot. I could go two directions here. So name them both. Do both of them. We got time. So I don't believe you can predict the market as somebody who was raised in a very evidence-based quantum mental shop where we did no predicting of the market. It's fascinating to see this whole ecosystem of folks yelling about stocks all day, every day, and guessing where macro is going to go and all these things. I don't think it's 75% of folks don't believe in market. And to be super good, it's predicting the timing of the market too. I think there's risk in timing. I think all the studies suggest that the risk, like the timing risk of active security selection um, is one of the biggest things. Um, that's why we're macro agnostic. We're, we're everything other than responsibly growing agnostics, despite the constant barrage on Twitter or CNBC or wherever. This idea that people just sit on TV yelling about future numbers and what they're going to predict pushes cool, qualified, math experienced people away from the industry. So that's my general take. My ESG take, and I hear this like a lot, is ESG data is not standardized and can't be standardized. And when you look at the companies that we hold in the portfolio, more than half the portfolio has externally assured environmental data. And so not only is it standardized, not only are they reporting through the same framework, they're getting external auditors to review their emissions data and a bunch of their environmental data. And the Department of Labor is reviewing their diversity data. And so while five years ago, for sure, it definitely looked like stuff was not standardized in terms of ESG data. All of the companies we're looking at have grabbed, have moved towards this. It's called the GRI template. There's like a billion different frameworks in ESG. But if you go into any large cap sustainability report, except for like a Tesla or all the folks who refuse to report basic ESG stuff, which is a very small group now, the vast majority, probably like 400 of the S&P 500 companies are reporting this framework. Are they reporting year over year? No. You can go back to their previous report and they, you know, they're, they're, some are laggards and some are ahead, but we're able to look at three-year data for most of these metrics for most of our companies. As you look back on your career, what's been the most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? Probably starting the firm, but I'm going to say this ETF, mostly because it's public. 
I mean, when you're operating in separate accounts, we could share stuff with what we're doing. But now it's like, hey, we're out there. Performance has been pretty good since we started, which is a coin toss to be super clear. We just like the product. We like the branding. We like Wes. We like the US market. It's great. There's so many opportunities. I mean, Canada's great too, to be super, super clear. But, you know, we love, we love how many of you there are. Uh, 10 times as many of us. You know, there's random $4 billion RIAs in the middle of states that nobody's ever heard of, which would be like the 12th largest, you know, RIA and, you know, asset uh, wealth shop in Canada. Um, and so I got to say, our, our ETFBs is my favorite investment. We don't love our companies one by one. We think of them as a team. We're fielding a team of players. I and mean, we don't play favorites. We we just want to pick a good team. So it's, you know, I'll never answer a single single security as uh, being a good investment or my favorite. Because again, that's just not how we approach portfolio construction. Right on. Where do people find out more information? Where do they go? Follow you, follow the firm, the fund, all that. So we have an ETF website, which is Honeytree Invest ETFs, which is all that formal one. Um, and we have honeytreeinvest.com, which is our regular one that has tons of blogs. If you just Google Honeytree, investment or honey tree ETF, you'll see like lots of articles and podcasts and things like that. I, despite uh, Twitter or whatever folks want to call it's uh, current shit show, I'm still on there. I'll be on there till it goes down for a variety of different reasons. Because I love the community and there's lots of great folks there. And it's how we, you know, met Wes and all these things. So Liz Simi on Twitter, if you want obnoxious, occasional ESG takes, I mostly just rant about how BlackRock is not woke. And you know, people should not be convinced that any asset manager is woke. That's us in a nutshell. And of course, you can go by BEEZ on select custody platforms in the US. If you're a retail investor, it's probably even easier to access than an advisor. But of course, we're, you know, we're mainly focused on advisors in this. So if you're an advisor interested in ESG and knows nothing about it, or you're a deep ESG practitioner, um, please feel free to reach out to us on our website, because that's who we're looking to connect with. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.